Thanks, Tony. Oh, wow. Got the graveyard shift, eh? Your tum- tummies are all full and we're all sort of a... You know? I, um, I empathise with all of you. Do whatever you need to do to stay awake. I'll try and make this interesting. Um, I, I once fell asleep in one of the workshops I was running myself. So uh, that's, a, that's a funny story for another time. But So I do know what it's like to kind of be where you are and uh, at this time of the day. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so I was, Alexander, was it, driving the bus? I was. I loved hearing your focal moment. Uh, there, I, uh, some of you know, I used to drive semi-trailers a long, long time ago, and I remember the very first time that I ever had to back a semi-trailer into, into a yard, I realised after about five goes at it that um, the entire yard, all the all the forkies and everybody had all come out into the yard and they were all watching me and, uh, and applauded when I finally got it in. Uh, <laughs> And uh, so I, I know what that's like, and uh, and yet it's an odd thing, isn't it? Somewhere over those next uh, weeks and months, I got to the point where you'd pull up at some narrow dock that, that, that only had about three inches spare either side of a trailer and a full rig, and you'd come in from 90 degrees off the road and you'd just stick the rig straight in without even thinking about it. I, and I suspect I could probably still do it today, but uh, there you go. Somewhere or another, that... I went from, oh my goodness, <laughs> the truck, the trailer, the this, the this, the this, this to, it just happens. It's just who I am. So, this uh, this lovely photo here is for me a um, sort of encapsulates this uh, this statement that Paul made to know as we are known from 1 Corinthians 13, and in many ways it it sums up for me uh, a great deal about um, where thinking of faith, hope and love as not sort of virtues, not sort of moral characteristics, but fundamentally the ways of being and ways of seeing that are that are enable us to actually to know well. And if you think of the, the mother and the child, um, it is this profound to know as we are known. There's a beautiful little book um, written years ago um, called A General Theory of Love. I don't know if anybody's seen this little book, but it's a, it's a beautiful marriage between uh, neuroscience and, and the stuff that we all just know about the incredible importance of a mother uh, with a child. It's this beautiful book that just goes backwards and forwards between what the neuroscience is saying and our own lived experiences of where that relationship is, is as it should be, is, is strong and vital and, and richly caring. And, uh, and talked about how it is that a child comes to do what they do and comes to know what they know and, and make their way in the world and fundamentally saying that, you know, it's not about practice. It's not about us concentrating and focusing and this is the thing I have to learn next. It is, it is simply this emerging within this beautiful relationship that is the context in which all learning takes place, all knowing takes place. And that is the bigger picture that, that uh, Esther's been painting for us and that I think we might um, see in Paul. One of my favourite um, images for Paul is to think of him as like a jazz musician. Uh, you've probably all seen or you've heard of these books that talk about Paul's theology of this and Paul's theology of that. I just find that is just so much... What was that term you used? Destructive... Uh, what was the term again? Destructive... Destructive analysis, yeah. It was interesting sitting at the back. I know this is going to sound a little bit too cheeky, but when we had our moment in the group and thinking about you know, our own experiences of modernity and the, the, the boo side, uh, that um, what occurred to me was pretty much all of my theological education. 
with a few nice moments along the way. And it's not to say that I'm not grateful for it and that I didn't learn a lot that it stayed with me, but in many respects the whole manner of that education was to somehow take God and us and life and, uh, and reduce them into boxes and into, into just so much data that you're meant to absorb. And the unwritten assumption in the whole process is that, that knowledge is power and that you're going to be the one who's going to stand in front of congregations and they're going to wait on your every word and they will need you in order to be able to know God. And you just, the moment you say it like that, you just go, that is so back to front. It's so, so wrong. Anyway, so my sense of when I think of Paul, as I hope to show just a little bit here, is that you know, he was not working from this kind of playbook. He was not working from a set of rules. He was not working from a set of analysis about even the way he understood the Old Testament. But what you have in Paul is this fascinating thing. If you look at each of his letters, and it helps understand why none of the letters talk exactly the same way, about Jesus or us or life in general. But they all have their own kind of camera lens. And my sense is that as Paul lives his life, having had the extraordinary experience on the Damascus Road and meeting the risen Jesus, that from there on, it's this case of he goes into another context and it's in that context that he comes to understand Jesus afresh. And he finds he has something to say. And those contexts mostly are meeting people and grappling with the things that they're grappling with and having to... And he doesn't do it from the place of, oh, I already know all about that. But he does it from the place, if you read Acts and his own letters, of he's deeply immersed in the experiences that they are having than that he is having. And as he moves along, he finds that this knowledge of God uh, and knowledge in the face of Christ emerges for him. And so it is that the letters each have their own uh, distinctive sort of characteristic... And for those of you who are not familiar with Paul, it might seem a really odd thing to be uh, talking about Paul in terms of a kind of a radical figure, which, you know, he absolutely is. Because, you know, when we think of all the kind of dark side that has been portrayed by, by formal Christianity, even down into, you don't have to look terribly far, do you, in our own century, uh, to see the, the misogyny and the power plays and the politicization and uh, money and all sorts of other things that are associated with Christianity. Very often, Paul has sort of been viewed as the poster boy of all of that, as if somehow he's the, he's the voice and we read back and we read his epistles as if somehow he's making a case for all this kind of hierarchy and authority and power and all the rest of it. And, and in my own work uh, and building on the work of many others, uh, I would say that's to have Paul completely back to front. And that in fact, uh, he finds him, he, he really is the most radical figure after Jesus, uh, certainly in the Greco-Roman and, and classical world. So I just want to give you a taste of, of I want to, rather than just repeat everything uh, around that Tony and I rambled our way through on faith, hope and love, which I can't remember anyway, uh, and it was probably come out better in question and answer, what I thought I'd like to do is just paint a kind of a bigger picture around knowledge and Paul and finally get to faith, hope and love, if that's okay. And I'm watching that clock up there nervously. So here we go. So I've thought about this as being like five big turns that Paul makes, uh, where in a sense he, he sort of turns the tables uh, on uh, understanding, on, on, on what was regarded as being uh, true, certain. Um, and the first of those... Uh, is the one that you find in um, in 1 Corinthians uh, 
chapter 1. You might remember the, the text there. You've got, there are handouts. If anyone hasn't got one, there's probably a few extras somewhere on the, on the, on the uh, table. The main thing of that handout is the back page with all those uh, quotes, quotes on there, just to give you an idea of the, of the contrast that I'm making. But here's, here's Paul. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God uh, is stronger uh, than human strength. And clearly by him talking about you know, the, the, the philosopher of this age, the wise person, uh, the, he has in mind uh, the, the Greco-Roman uh, world, the moral philosophers and, and, and those sorts of people. You remember this is the guy who goes up onto the hill in Athens uh, and has that extraordinary conversation and to give you an idea of just how radical this voice, this fellow is, can you remember how Paul starts that talk when he goes up to the hill? He says, men of Athens, I perceive you are religious in every way. For as I walked through the marketplace, I saw this, an idol to an unknown God. That which you don't know, let me now tell you about. Can you imagine an Isaiah ever starting a talk like that? Can you imagine any Old Testament prophet saying, oh, look, I saw an idol down there. That's really useful. I'll use that as my starting point in a positive way for a conversation. Uh, you, you get the sense straight away, what has happened to this guy? What has happened to this Pharisee of Pharisees, this, this Jew of Jews, um, that he could actually see the world around him in another way that would lead him to actually want to engage with it? It doesn't mean that he would necessarily agree with it. There's still a sharpness of critique, but it's not a critique from a distance. It's a critique from engagement, from being immersed and involved uh, with people. And to just give you a taste of the world in which, um, you know, his, the sort of backdrop to his statements about how startling it is for him to say that the foolishness of God is wiser than the, the wisdom of men. Um, you have, there's a strong tradition, uh, in classical, uh, philosophy that basically say that you, unlike what Esther's been teaching us here, that, that you, you disavow the, the human, the, the personal, the, the everyday that whatever is true is somehow disconnected from uh, ordinary human experience. And Plato in particular, a long time before the New Testament, but Plato in particular, when he tries to give a description of the whole of life in the Timaeus uh, and how it all works, um, he basically says uh, that there's two realms to understand. Uh, one is the realm that is, that is itself the true, and the other is the stuff we live in. It's the stuff of this and this and trees and, and all human beings, all this sort of stuff. And basically what he says is if you want to actually know what is true, then what you have to do is to learn through, through reason to leave behind all appearances, to leave behind uh, all this sort of stuff that we would think of as evidentiary. And, and there's a whole long story as to how on earth that empiricism became part of, part of our thinking. Um, to leave all that behind because that, uh, the more you focus on the world that is here, you cannot possibly understand how things truly are. The more you leave behind what is here, the more you are going to understand what is in fact actually true. Um, and so, stop in a moment and say, if that's the kind of dominant way of thinking about what is wise and what is true, then, then, then imagine the shock that someone stands up and says, well, he, I'll tell you what's true. I'll tell you what's true, that a man born in obscurity with a very strange story who grows up in obscurity, 
who comes to, to uh, enjoy the enmity both of his own people and of Rome, who ends up being, dying on a Roman cross, and then this preposterous story about him being raised from the dead, that is actually the wisdom of God. That is actually the truth. You can imagine in the, the mindset of the classical world, this is just, it is foolish, as he said. It's completely and utterly foolish. That is, it, it accords with nothing that is real for them. It just does not fit what is real. And for the Jews, because his critique runs in both directions, it is weakness. Because for them, there is this strong, strong story that goes certainly to Abraham and earlier, but particularly from Abraham all the way through, which has nestled in it this promise that we as a nation, the ones that God has favoured on the earth, we will end up one day having our position of absolute sort of supremacy and centrality to the world. And the world will come to us. There's your picture of strength. And Paul's way of describing it is to say, well, actually, you've got the right story, but you've got the wrong ending. And the ending of that story is this crucified Messiah from Nazareth. And, and for them, it's just, that, that's the most pathetic ending to the story you can imagine for those who are still waiting for the day of Jerusalem and Israel's sort of redemption uh, in the traditional sense. So there's the, there's the first turn that in the story of Jesus, the expectation about what is wise and what is strong is turned on its head. The second turn is around, in in every part of, um, certainly in the Western tradition, all the way through from from the pre-Socratic philosophers, way, way back, you know, Homer, etc., Hesiod, all the way through to the present day, there is this, there's always been this deep tension between what we might think of as the rational and the irrational. So alongside of Plato and others' accounts and Aristotle and others' accounts of the certainty of reason and the certainties of logic and how it works and how you can be trusted to tell us how things really, really are, there is this other side that is always there that's basically, well, you know, life is kind of full of all sorts of vagaries and uncertainties and unpleasantness and and I don't know about you but I just can't figure it all out and I need some help to know how on earth I'm going to deal with this. And so you get interesting little things like this little amulet here. It's about an inch by two inches. It's a tiny little thing and it has this... Um, this story uh, 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 inscribed into it, um, which is all about an initiate in a mystery. An initiate, uh, and and this person carries this around. It's almost like the card they're going to play when they die. And uh, and the words on it uh, translated are this. I am, this is the initiate, I am parched with thirst and perishing. This... This frail body is falling away from me. Spring, then come drink of me. The ever-flowing spring on the, on the right, there is a bright cypress. Who are you and where are you from? The initiate, I'm the son of earth and starry heaven, but my race is heavenly. It's this, it's, why has this person got this thing in their toga? Why are they carrying this sort of thing around? It's insurance, basically against fate, against the fortune, against the vagaries uh, of life. Um, There's this kind of the the yin and the yang, if you like, the irrational that goes with the rational. And that language of the mysteries goes all the way through a huge section of uh, Greco-Roman and classical life, 
all the way from the formal, as you see in those texts in the back there, from the kind of formal structures of religion in the imperial cult and others, that there are these, these prescribed rituals that are, that are occurred. And the language of mystery is always used with them because it has this sense of, oh, there's something more going on here than we can actually give account for. Right down to the other end of the secret societies and, and all kinds of, of funny business and chicanery and, and nonsense that goes on. And in the middle, there's this whole industry around the production of, of charms and, and all kinds of stuff that people carry, carry with them. And all of it is about saying that no matter what the philosophers say about how certain life is and how it all works, the reality is, especially if I'm lower down the food chain, I live in this world where frankly it doesn't work and frankly fate and fortune have their way with me and I have no way of being able to resist and to fight against this. And so this whole industry is created about saying, how do I get an inside edge on that? Because the philosophers had said, well, it's all about the morality of your life. The more, the, the, the better you are as a person, the more likely it is that fate and fortune will smile on you. And of course, it's a bit like Job's friends. You don't have to live for too long to go, I'm not so sure that works. Uh, and so there's this whole production of stuff. Whereas for Paul, it's fascinating. He uses the same word, but he always uses it in the singular, the mystery. And for him, it's this declaration of, it's a bit like when he goes up to Athens and says, this thing that you don't know, and now let me tell you about. To them, it's a bit like he's saying, this thing that you've always wondered about, is there something else that is there about how would I ever peer into the mind of the gods and actually know and be able to live in such a way that, that I can cope with life? And Paul says, well, the, the mystery is now out in the open. There's one mystery, but it's for you. He made known to us the mystery of his will to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ Jesus, to sum up all things under him, to present to you the word of God in all its fullness, the mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations, now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And imagine for someone whose world is all about whether at one end be the imperial cult and the talks of the sort of formal way of talking about mysteries there through to all the kind of strange business going on in back alleys around, around mysteries, to have someone turn around and say to you, you know what, we do know the will of God now. It's out in the open. It's all bound up in one person, this person Jesus. And everything that the universe is about is all going to make sense one day around him. There's my second term. Here's the third. This is really, I, I never stand behind lecterns and I never do this thing where I can't interact. But it's, So bear with me as a, you can see my anxiety is in full flow here. Uh, then there's this, one of my favourite passages of all uh, with Paul is in uh, Romans 12, the first couple of verses of Romans 12. Um, and uh, I've just got, you know, you know the passage and he says, you know, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And those four images up there are, are my sort of snapshot of, uh, of what I think of as the four, four, at least four big patterns that shape the world for Paul and which he's going to declare have lost their hold uh, uh, over us. Now, I don't know about you, when, when I was growing up, and I grew up in a family with a believing mum and dad, when I read that passage, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, I immediately, and I was taught, it's don't smoke, don't drink, don't have sex, uh, 
I don't know, add in your other favourite things Christians are not supposed to do. You know, That was my sense of what those things actually meant. But when you stand back and you read Paul in particular in the light of this extraordinary big story of saying that in, in the person of Christ, God has come onto the earth in the resurrection of this, this Christ, of this Jesus, the future of the world is now guaranteed. In this huge story, then you realise he's not talking about don't smoke and don't drink and don't have sex. He's talking about there are big ways of that the world is organised and shaped. Big schemas is his word that actually shape our lives. But they've lost their hold. And for the first time ever in all of classical literature, and I'm indebted to Edwin Judge who taught me this many, many years ago, somebody uses the language of transformation, of metamorphosis, uses it positively. It's the first time in a thousand years of literature that anybody ever uses this language positively. Because if you think about it, uh, especially as I'll describe in a moment about rank and status, for everybody the world has to be kept the way it is. Conformity is what matters. If you want to know what's true, then conform. So the idea of change or of complete transformation is an anathema. And here is Paul making this incredibly outrageous and dangerous suggestion that the world can and will be different and that we can and will be different. And that the heart of that transformation to being different is that our minds are renewed, they are transformed. And the heart of that transformation is in the first verse um, around in view of the mercies of God, present yourselves as living sacrifices, which is the language, liturgia, is the language that is used of your obligation to the Caesars. Right? Not of worship as we think about you know, going to church or something, but it's your worship in the sense of the liturgies to the imperial cult. Yeah? Your obligations to the Caesars. And he's saying now your obligation ultimately, despite what he says in Romans 13 about, about you know, doing the right thing with the authorities, despite that he's saying the world has shifted so much there's only one kurios who really matters now. There's only one Lord. Kurios Jesus, Lord Jesus, not Kurios Caesar, Caesar the Lord. And so in the light of that, these four great um, patterns on the top and the left is the control of Rome over your entire life. That's a, a, a snapshot of the, um, uh, the, the biography, basically, of Augustus uh, and giving all the, the accomplishments of Augustus in bringing about, supposedly, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the establishment of an order across the whole world by which everybody now benefits, don't they? Um, well, it depends on where you are in the, in the zoo, right? Uh, but, uh, and, but there was a sense that it's propaganda, obviously, but the reality is people's lives were almost entirely structured around what Rome did and what Rome said. Uh, the second on the top left-hand side there is, a uh, right-hand side, is I think of as uh, dualism. It's a funny word to introduce in this context, but if you go back to what I said earlier about Plato and the Timaeus and, and the world that is the world of truth and this other world, which is our kind of stuff, you know, physicality and all the rest of it, um, there is this, this assumption around uh, the, the world of ordinary everyday people and occurrences is not the context in which you will find truth. Truth is to be found in abstracted ideas 
and ideals and reason is the way by which you get there. But here's the interesting thing, and this leads us to the bottom uh, left-hand side, is that you, you think, how did a guy like Plato come up with the idea that there's one bit of life that matters and another bit of life that doesn't matter? Uh, to use my little funny term, what, what, what matters doesn't matter, what isn't matter matters. What matters doesn't, what's matter doesn't matter, what isn't matter matters, if, if you follow that. And it struck me one day, I think I know why a guy would come up with something like that, because that's the world he lives in. Because he lives in a, in a strata in society that is the only ones that actually matter, and those below don't matter. And the proof of this is the way in which this idea of dualism plays itself out in the disregard for any person that actually works with their own hands. Now, you know that in, in, here in, in this country, Esther, I can't think of what they are in America, even though I lived there for three years, but here you know, we use these derogatory terms like, uh, well, it depends. Now they get, they get owned, but Westie or Bogan or... I don't know, you think of your favourite term, there's some way of people of status, of rank, dismissing other people, right? Uh, and the favourite one for a thousand years in classical literature was he works with his own hands. And you'll remember then that in the Corinthian letters, that's exactly what Paul is accused of and what he also takes pride in, that I worked with my own hands, which for them is like, oh, please don't say that, you know? You've, you've already you know, failed on all of our expectations. Please don't add that to the list. All right? um, and interestingly, this text here on the, on the um, uh, bottom left-hand side is actually what's called an epicrisis uh, uh, papyri. It is an application to send your child to a school like this one, okay? so they weren't big and you know, rambling like this. They were just smallish but they were for a privileged part of society. And in this epicrisis, which is a, a, uh, a formal process by which you verify your child's um, standing to be, to be admitted into the school, you had to show evidence of sustaining rank on the father's side six generations, on the mother's side eight generations. Right? The, this is how the world worked in this day. Uh, rank is something you're born into. It's fixed. It can be only changed by things like marriage or a decree or an adoption. That's why you read these funny things about you know, a 30-year-old fellow who has a 40-year-old son uh, because it's been adopted. Okay? But status is fossilised. Uh, so uh, rank is fossilised status. Status is this other stuff that we all know about. It's money and it's good looks and it's... it's uh, uh, prowess at some, some activity or another and it's oratory in this world, not so much for us today. Um, and the world, like today, in many parts of the, of the world today, there are, there are places where you, know, you could be of high, stat high rank but low in money, so low in status, or you could be a person of low rank but cashed up. Right? And in certain contexts, the person who's of a low rank and cashed up can do all sorts of things the other person can't do until it comes to a moment like this and you want to get your child into this special school. And at that moment, it's, no, 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 this is about old money, not new money. Uh, this is the way the world works. And the last one on the, the bottom right-hand side, of course, is a figure from the, um, the Titus Arch in, uh, in Rome. Uh, which is uh, at the top of the forum looking, you look straight down through it to the Colosseum. And this was a, a, an arch that was uh, a gate 
that was created in honour of Titus in the sacking of Jerusalem in AD 70. And this is one of the images from the relief. So you can see the kind of bits and pieces from the temple being dragged off to Rome uh, in in captivity. Um, And for Paul, I think you, you can hear in all of his letters these four big things, seeing these as what shapes the world around them. The power of Rome, the sense that it is it is the story. You know, I've often thought when Paul is effectively telling a world story, it's a story for the whole world. And I think there's two angles on this. One is he effectively says to his Jewish compatriots, you've got the right story but the wrong ending. And for everybody else, of course, the story of the world is Augustus. The story of the world is the Pax Romana through, through Augustus. And Paul is, is saying to them, that I know this shapes our entire lives. Read the book of Acts and what happens to Paul all the way through it. Rome structures even his life in many respects. Um, there's, the, there's the philosophical uh, ways of seeing the world which discredits uh, uh, humanity fundamentally. It just discredits emotion and experience and all the rest of it. There's the structures of rank and status which say you're here and you're there and that completely determines what a person's life's going to look like from there on. And then of course for those who still have Jewish heritage there's the sense of I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. When is it finally all going to happen? Because that resurrection thing, I don't think that was it. When is it all going to happen? Or even if I do buy into this Jesus story, hang on, what? I need to get circumcised, I need to keep the Sabbath, I need to, you know, these are the big structures that shape his world and Paul does this extraordinary radical thing to say these things have lost their hold now and a person can be transformed uh, by the renewing of their mind and that's not a philosophical exercise that is a being embraced by the one who has given his life on our behalf Um, so I'll I'll skip a little bit here the the fourth um, uh, turn is uh, I, I like to think of is in relation to Philippians. I know, I think I mentioned this in the talk that Tony and I had, but I just want to briefly mention it again. Um, you can hear in all of this of what I've said about just how, you know, the story of Rome is just all-encompassing. Um, and Paul does this extraordinary thing in uh, in Philippians chapter two. You would you would all know the story. Let me just read it. I'm going to read it kind of back to front. Um, I'm going to start uh, from this, what I've put here as a second paragraph. Just listen to the logic of this. Paul says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him and... Uh, uh, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now for those who had some background in the Old Testament or knew the Jewish scriptures, there's a couple of places you'd immediately go in, in th- thinking about who's he talking about here? Well, I know it's about Jesus, but there's another story behind this. There's two obvious candidates. One is Adam, okay, who grasped at equality with God. Okay? Uh, and Jesus is the kind of reversal of that story of Adam. The other is the stories of the suffering servant in Isaiah, uh, the one who willingly lays down his own life on behalf of others. But if you're a Gentile reader or listener to this story, who do you think of when the story begins with 
there is a Lord, a Kurios, who grasps that divinity. Who do you immediately think of? Thank you. Thank you. And everyone who followed after him. Um, uh, Divi Caesar, uh, Divi Augustus. Um, they're all regarded as, as divine, right? The assumption is that, that that is who Augustus is. Augustus is the gods manifest on the earth. You, you all, many of you would know that beautiful um, hymn in the first chapter of Colossians. Um, which I'm struggling to remember from, recite from memory. But you know that one about, it's the image of the invisible God, firstborn from the dead, da 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 da, he's the head of the body, he's blah blah blah. Almost every one of those phrases in that little hymn, verses 15 to 20 of Colossians 1, is found on coins and inscriptions all over the Mediterranean world of Caesar, of Augustus, and of those who followed after Augustus. So when you come to this passage here, you think, hang on a minute. What's going on here? Paul effectively takes the story of Augustus, turns it on its head and says, the true Lord did not grasp at equality with God, did not make himself divine, but emptied himself and went through this excruciating and appalling uh, death, only then to be, to be, to be glorified. Um, and, but, but it's how it fits in the rest of the passage that I find really fascinating. Verse 5 you all know that one about have this mind in you which was also in Christ. It's, it's always puzzled translators as to what on earth do you do with this, this verse because the word mind doesn't occur anywhere in the, in the text. Right? So how do you translate this? And the interesting thing is that the word that is used uh, in there uh, is, uh, is the, the verb phreneo which is related to the noun phrenesis and phrenesis is one of the two big words Sophia and phrenesis that occurs all the way through classical literature all the way into the Greco-Roman period as talking about what is the nature of wisdom and as you see one of the texts on the right hand side there in the bottom one um, it belongs to wisdom that is phrenesis um, this is from Aristotle, to take counsel, to judge the goods and evils and all the things in, in life that are desirable to be avoided, to blah, 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 blah. In other words, this is what real wisdom is, is that you take account of the world as it is and it is supposed to be and you act always in conformity with how the world is. That is the nature of true wisdom. And Paul does this extraordinary thing here. Now, the logic runs back to front. Here's this story of this anti-Augustus, this anti-Caesar who empties himself. And then here's this thing. This is actually what wisdom now is. Wisdom is this man and this man's story and what you, the implication you draw from the story. And the implication you draw is in the verses above it. Uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but, it to, uh, but each of you to the interests of others. This is the wisdom of Christ. So this turn here to say, despite all the impressiveness of, of Augustus and the Pax Romana and Romanitas, He's saying the actual true Lord of the universe is the one who empties himself of all things, doesn't grasp the quality, makes himself nothing, trusts to his father to raise him from the dead. And this is now the shape of what true wisdom is. And what's that going to look like then for you? Well, fundamentally, your life looks like his. So rather than grasping at whatever you can, which was completely unexceptional in the classical world, you are meant to do this. 
You were meant to take to yourself as much as you can for yourself. The, the Greeks had this term, uh, philotimia, the love of honour. And that was regarded as a virtue. Today we're going to go, oh, it's a bit you know, ugly. We see political figures and others sort of doing all sorts of things to grandstand and make themselves great and it's all a bit embarrassing and ugly. You think, how on earth did this virtue become a vice for us? For Paul, the picture is true wisdom now is fundamentally shaped, the true knowing of the world is shaped by inverted relationships, by an engaging with one another in a way that reflects what Jesus has actually done on behalf of the cosmos. So it is that when you come to this fifth turn, (laughs) that it starts to make at least a bit more sense to me. You know, we've all heard this passage cited in wedding after wedding after wedding after wedding, which has kind of, I think, uh, not helped us understand the the radicalness of it all. I mean, we read those words, love is patient, love is kind, you know, blah, 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 and it all sounds really sweet, you know, like, of course, of course, that's what you're supposed to do. Each of those phrases in his day and age are extraordinarily radical because given, and I know I've brushed over it too quickly, but the way the world of rank and status worked is fundamentally self-interest. That's what makes the world work in those days. And you know that phrase where he says, does not keep a record of wrongs? That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to keep a record of wrongs. You know when he says to the Corinthians, you know, can't you solve this yourselves? Why do you have to go to the courts? And we think, what the hell is going on there? They're just acting normally. That's what people did. You took each other to the courts over all manner of different things. And just to be clear, in, in Roman law, you could not take a person uh, to court of a rank higher than yourself, only of the, your own rank or below. And guess who the judges were? So the system's rigged, right? And part of the game that you played out over and over again is this keeping of a record of what it is you've done and I've done and they've done and so that I can, I can pull it all together at some point and go off to the courts. And because the courts is not even so much about what money I get, it's about that I managed, I grandstand. I make myself look good in front of others. And then you go back to the whole of the Corinthian, the first Corinthian letter and you start thinking, hang on a minute, he's been talking about knowledge the whole way through this. He talks about this factionalism, which is all about, oh, I like Peter because he knows more than Apollos, and I like Apollos because he knows more than Paul, and then there's the super spiritual crowd, I'm of, I'm of Jesus, right? And then he critiques this whole thing about, don't you realise that the wisdom of God has upended everything that we think is wise? And then he keeps moving through the passage and he talks about how the factionalism is playing itself out amongst them and that basically people have even done extraordinary things like take the gifts that God has given them through the Spirit and use those as means by which they can, they can put down other people around them, uh, to use those as marks of superiority. It's right through the whole letter. Think about, you know that strange passage about they have a, a meal together and Paul says, some of you turn up and, and, and uh, eat to excess and get drunk, right? And others turn up and they get nothing. And you think, I don't know how they do that with a tiny little sip of wine and you know, a little cracker, you know? Obviously it's a real meal, but, but to make sense of it, there are people who can turn up when they want to and who are going to be treated with honour by others. And there are people who can't turn up when they want to, and when they do turn up, they are not treated with honour. In other words, that even within 
despite the story of Jesus coming to them, despite the presence of the Spirit, in many ways, the Corinthian little gatherings of people still look an awful lot like the world around them and still functioning like that. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul starts with this staggering uh, statement when he says, "If I, uh, even if I knew all things but didn't have love, and um, I don't know, Esther, if you've ever thought about this, but it strikes me that that's the most succinct summary of the entire goal of classical philosophy I've ever read. To know all things. To have exhaustive knowledge. That's the game they're all playing at. And Paul makes this comment, what if I actually pulled it off? If I actually knew everything, but didn't have love? And for him, it's like, well, that just, that just negates it all. Uh, and so he comes through with this thing at the end where he says, you know, when, when I was a child, I thought like a child and the time came I had to grow up and I had to think differently. Um, he says, we now see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these uh, is love. So just think about in terms of the turns that I've painted, and I've got to stop, but if in turn one, remember, that God has made foolish, you know, if all pretensions to wisdom and strength have been turned on their heads by this new good news, and, and good news is the phrase used everywhere in the Roman Empire for the birth of an emperor, for the victory of an emperor, etc. Same term that is used over and over again. Uh, Again, you can hear the radicalness of this. If all those pretensions have been turned on their heads, if all recourse to mysteries to avert the vagaries of fate and fortune are now eclipsed by the will of God, which has come into full view on the earth, if the way has been opened to throw off those schemas that have held us down, our entire lives. If our lives are now to take on the upside-down character of the anti-Caesar, eschewing personal ambition on behalf of the well-being of others, then to know truly is to see with eyes attuned to this story, faith. To believe a better day is coming, hope, and to embrace all without respect to nationality, race, social position, gender or ability. For that's love. For there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ. And I came across this, uh, I'll finish here, but I came across this really interesting uh, image of a, a Dutch artist who painted these 11 panels to tell the biblical story and from creation to new creation. And it struck me that that when I saw this, I thought, I think I can locate these three words, faith, hope and love, in relation to this incredible schema. Faith is this. It's fundamentally looking backwards. It's in this story that I find my identity and my ways of seeing reality. Hope obviously looks forward. This story is now my future. I see meanings and possibilities in everything from this end backwards. And love is a way of engaging in this story, because it's not finished, this story, that is a radical embracing of all others and that continues to change me and the ways I see everyone and everything. 
That's it for me.